0: For the past seven weeks, we've been walking through the letter of 1 Peter, which is a book of the Bible really all about how to live as God's people in the world. It's sort of a field guide for living as Christians. Two weeks ago, Pastor Brett unpacked 1 Peter 2, 4 through 10, which is an amazing passage about the Christian's identity in Christ. Peter writes and he says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession, so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Through the gospel, we've been given a new identity. What Peter's saying here is that like Israel in the Old Testament, believers in the New Testament are now God's chosen race, his, his chosen people. We are his royal priesthood. Everyone that is in Christ belongs to the chosen people of God. And priests in the Old Testament were called to mediate God's presence to others. They would really make God's presence accessible. And and what Peter's saying here is that that's us. As followers of Jesus, we are royal priests. We mediate God's presence to the world. We're a holy nation that is commissioned to demonstrate and declare his goodness And so in light of that identity and calling, beginning in verse 11 of chapter 2, Peter is going to shift from establishing the believer's identity in the gospel to urging believers to live out of that identity. He says, Dear friends, I urge you as strangers and exiles to abstain from sinful desires that wage war against the soul and conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles so that when they slander you as evildoers, they will observe your good works and will glorify God on the day he visits. And so last week, Andy Herman established for us the big idea over this section of the letter, which is that as ambassadors for Christ, we are called to live holy, honorable lives. That's what Peter says here. He says, abstain from the sinful desires that wage war against your soul, live a holy life. And then he says to live an honorable life. And there's this interesting dynamic that Peter emphasizes in these two verses, because on the one hand, he says, your life will be strange to others. As God's chosen people, you're in exile in the culture you live in. There's, there's no avoiding this reality that as a follower of Jesus, your life is going to be peculiar to the world. In fact, what Peter says is that your faith is likely going to get you slandered as an evildoer. People are going to accuse these believers in Asia Minor of being troublemakers because they refused to honor or recognize other gods or to worship the emperor. And because of this, they would be seen as too exclusive and too narrow and a threat to the social order. And so Peter tells them they're going to be treated unfairly, but he also tells them that if they stay true to their calling and live faithfully as followers of Jesus, that in the end, God is going to get glory out of that. In fact, what Peter hints at is that through their steadfast testimony, as they live faithful to Jesus, as they live a holy, honorable life, some of these same Gentiles who at first ridicule them will end up becoming followers of Jesus because of their witness. And so Peter is exhorting these believers to live honorable lives that are devoted to Jesus. That's really the big idea. That's the heading over this section of the letter. And now beginning in 13, he's going to start applying that big idea to specific relationships. And as he as he begins to apply this calling to live an honorable life to these specific relationships, truthfully, Peter is going to get me into all kinds of trouble because four times in this section of the letter, Peter's going to use the word submit to describe how believers are to live honorably. And that word submit is a dirty word in our culture. It just happens to be a key idea for the Apostle Peter's Christian ethic. And if that's not scandalizing enough, Peter is going to use this idea of submission within the relationships of civil authority, servants and masters, and marriage. And so this is perhaps a good time to be reminded of what Second Timothy three sixteen and 17 says, namely that all Scripture, all Scripture, is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, and for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Perhaps we should pause and ask for prayers. We dig in to what God has to say to us specifically about the Christian's relationship with civil authority. Let's pause and pray together. God, as we come now to your word and specifically this portion of the letter of 1 Peter, we need your help. These are hard words. This is, these are hard concepts. As we think about submission, as we think about civil authority, we pray that you would give us ears to hear what you have to say. And not only ears to hear, but to understand and to apply, to walk in the truths that you're calling us to. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. At the time Peter wrote the letter of 1 Peter, either Claudius or Nero was emperor. and, And neither man was known for their gracious treatment of Christians. Eventually, Nero would begin to systematically attack believers in Christ. In fact, in the first three centuries, Christians were persecuted more than any other religious group. And this group of believers in Asia Minor that Peter is writing to very likely had already begun to experience mistreatment for their faith by the government. And so you can imagine the questions that may have been swirling in their minds, questions like, how should we engage in a culture that is hostile to us? What is our responsibility to a civil authority that discriminates against us? And if we're sojourners and exiles of heaven, then are we free from civic responsibility here on earth? Can we disregard and disobey human government since we're citizens of a heavenly government? There would have been real temptation for these believers to dismiss and disregard and disrespect the human authorities that were over them. On the other hand, there would have also been a temptation to conform or to capitulate back into the culture that they came out of by caving into the emperor worship that was so popular during their day. If they bowed their knee to the emperor, most, if not all of their perceived problems, would go away. And so you have these competing temptations, one toward disrespect and the other toward deification. Now, we live in a very different society than the first century believers of Asia Minor. We aren't under an emperor. We live in a constitutional republic, which means that we're participants in helping decide who governs us. We, we get to vote. We have a voice. And yet I think the very same temptations to disrespect, to disobey, or on the other hand to deify civil authorities are ever before us. A quick scroll through the war zone called Twitter reveals each of these temptations rather quickly. The language used to degrade our nation's leaders is alarming. The offhanded jabs at our president and at our congressional leaders is all too common. Meanwhile, a a new leader, or maybe an old one, is held forward in a sort of messianic way as the great hope for our nation. If only so-and-so could get into office, then all of our problems would get fixed. If only this party held control. If only, if only, if only. We have disrespect on the one hand, deification on the other hand. I wonder which you're most inclined toward. Perhaps it depends on who's in office or what election cycle it is. Well, this morning, the Apostle Peter invites us into another way. He calls us to take a gospel approach toward civil authority. And I want to show you what I mean by gospel approach. It involves a posture, a power, and a perspective. And so let's look at these one at a time. First, a posture, verse 13. Peter writes, "...submit to every human authority because of the Lord." whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors. And then verse 17, honor everyone. Love the brothers and sisters, fear God, honor the emperor. The posture that Peter invites believers to take towards civil authorities is a posture of submission and honor. If we're honest, the very idea of submission sounds antiquated and feels oppressive. But here Peter is going to use it repeatedly in this section of the letter. It's an important concept for him. And to submit literally means to come underneath something. It's a military term that refers to putting oneself under another in rank. Stephen Cole defines it as an attitude of respect that results in obedience and good deeds. I think that's a helpful definition because what what Peter is teaching here very simply is that believers are called to respect the governing authority of the land they live in. That as followers of Christ, they should obey the law in the direction of their leaders, the apostle Paul says something very similar in the book of Romans. In Romans thirteen, he writes, "Let everyone submit to the governing authorities." He goes on and he says, "Pay your obligations to everyone: taxes to those you owe taxes, tolls to those you owe tolls." And from these passages, we begin to catch a glimpse of the purpose of civil authority. In in verse fourteen. Peter says that governors are to punish those who do what is evil and praise those who do what is good. And the Apostle Paul says that the authorities exist and are instituted by God as a terror to bad conduct. He says, for it is God's servant for your good, an avenger that brings wrath on the one who does wrong. The role of civil authority is to establish justice and maintain order in a world that is prone toward evil. Governments exist to keep societies from becoming as bad as they could possibly become. They keep the world from anarchy. They exist to discourage bad conduct and to uphold good conduct. As followers of Jesus, we should not be active participants in the anarchy. N.T. Wright says, No good will come to the cause of the gospel by followers of Jesus being regarded as crazy dissidents who won't cooperate with the most basic social mechanisms. We should be contributors to peace and order by humbling ourselves under the laws of our land. Christians should have a reputation for being good citizens. Notice verse 15, for it is God's will that you silence the ignorance of foolish people by doing good. Stephen Cole says the idea is that by our active good deeds, we take away the basis for criticism of Christianity from those who oppose it. He goes on, he says, when Christians live like that in the midst of a pagan culture, it is a powerful testimony. On the other hand, when professing Christians disrespect authority, when they disobey the law, or when they withdraw from society and live unto themselves without doing good deeds, it leaves a bad taste in the mouths of those who are prone to criticize Christianity. And so our posture towards civil authority is a witness to a watching world. And this leads into the other half of what Peter says. He not only calls believers to submit, but also to honor. Verse 17, he says, honor everyone. And and then he, he, he zooms in and he says, honor the emperor. You know, it's possible to submit with a lousy attitude. But here, Peter calls believers not only to obey, but to honor those in authority. This is a word that means to respect and revere. I want you to think about what a remarkable statement this is from Peter. Peter would eventually die by the hands of the emperor. And according to tradition, he he was crucified upside down for his allegiance to Jesus. And yet here, what he's saying is that we should respect the authority over us. Even that kind of an authority. I'm reminded that Jesus taught us to love our enemies, to do good to those who hate you, to bless those who curse you. And to pray for those who mistreat you. This is such a radically countercultural idea. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Peter 1 or 1, 1 Timothy 2, verse 1 First of all, then I urge that petitions, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for everyone, for kings, and all who are in authority. It is your Christian obligation to respect and pray for civil leaders and not just the ones you voted for. I can remember an old bumper sticker from when I was a teenager that read don't blame me i voted for bush. And more recently I've seen a lot of not my president hashtags in the past couple of years. But Daniel 4:17 reminds us that the most high is ruler over human kingdoms and he gives them to anyone he wants and sets the lowliest of people over them. God is sovereign over who is president. And he is your president, whether you voted for him or not. It was God who put him in place, and therefore you are called to submit and to honor him. In our society, we make jokes about our political leaders. We portray them as buffoons and idiots. Political satire is accepted fair, but we should think twice about it as followers of Jesus." This is not to say that our leaders are above criticism. Certainly, we have a right to scrutinize policy, to appeal to our leaders, to rule justly, to legislate morally. But we should be known more for our respect and prayer for leaders than for our political jokes and criticism of them. The Christian posture towards civil authority is to be one of submission and honor. Now, here's a question I think we're all wrestling with at this point. How in the world do we find the power to live this way? That's the second thing I want us to see here. Notice where Peter points believers to find the strength to live this way. Verse 16, he says, submit as free people. Not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but as God's slaves. What is he actually saying? He's saying that the submission we render to human authorities flows out of our freedom in Christ. We don't obey the law or respect authority because that's what we're supposed to do, because that's what we have to do. No, we do it because we want to please God. Submission to civil authority is ultimately about obeying and honoring God. That's why Peter says, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but as God's slaves. See, the freedom the gospel brings is not a freedom to live selfishly, but a freedom from selfishness. Through the gospel, we are liberated from sin and self to do what pleases our Heavenly Father. This is a fundamental gospel reality. It's religion that says, if I obey, therefore I'll be accepted. But it's the gospel that says, God has freely accepted me in Christ, therefore I want to obey him. The gospel gives us new desires, and that's what Peter means when he says submit as free people. No human authority has ultimate sway over the believer because God sits on the throne of your heart. He is Lord. But because he is Lord, and because he calls us to honor human authority, we do it. Jesus has set you free to live a life of faithfulness to God, to live as his servants. And living as God's servant is really no burden at all. We gladly submit to him because unlike every other authority, God is perfectly faithful. He's perfectly true. He's trustworthy in every way. And so when he calls us to submit to the governing authorities, we do it willingly, freely, because we love him and we trust him. Ultimately, what Peter is setting before us is the question, of who or what has most control over our lives. See, if your political alignment is what is most fundamental to you, if that is your identity, you will find it impossible to honor and submit to leaders from the other party. You will find it gut-wrenching to break with party allegiance to agree with what is actually true. But see, if the glory of God is what controls you, then you're free to respect people on the other side of the aisle because this pleases your heavenly Father. You're free to affirm what is right and true, no matter which party it's coming from, because ultimately all truth is God's truth. Has the gospel liberated you from the shackles of political idolatry? Here's another way of framing this question. What do you fear most? Pastor Tim Keller explains that to fear something is to be overwhelmed by it. And to be overwhelmed by something is to be controlled by it. What authority is controlling your life? Notice verse 18. Peter says to honor the emperor. But he says fear is reserved for God. Honor the emperor. Fear God. If God is what has overwhelmed you, then his will is what will control you. See, the power to truly live honorably towards civil authority comes from getting things in their proper place. And this, by the way, is also what helps us to discern when we shouldn't obey human authorities. There is a limit. When Peter calls us to submit to every human authority, he's issuing a general principle, not an absolute mandate. The Bible's entire theology of civil authority is not spelled out in this one passage. As we study the whole Bible, we find several examples when followers of God disobeyed human authority because of their loyalty to God. In Exodus 1, the Hebrew midwives were instructed by Pharaoh to kill Hebrew-born boys. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do as the Pharaoh had told them, because they respected God and his word and his value of all human life. And as a result, God was good to the midwives and the people of God multiplied and became very numerous. God rewarded their civil disobedience. In the book of Joshua, Rahab hid the Jewish spies from the authorities and helped them escape. And the book of Hebrews praises her for doing so. In Daniel chapter 3, King Nebuchadnezzar issued a decree that at the sound of the instruments, everyone was to bow down to the giant statue that had been erected. But Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refused to bow down because they believed only Yahweh was worthy of worship. And in response, they were thrown into the fiery furnace, but the Lord spared them from the fire. A little later in the book of Daniel, a decree was issued throughout the kingdom of Babylon that for 30 days, no one should pray to anyone but King Darius stating, whoever makes a petition to any God or man for 30 days, except you, O King shall be cast into the den of lions. But when Daniel had heard that the document was signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. And he got down upon his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. And as a consequence, Daniel was thrown into the lion's den, but the Lord shut the mouths of the lions. Or consider Acts 4, where Peter and John are dragged before the Sanhedrin and told to stop speaking and healing in the name of Jesus. And their reply was to say, you'll have to decide for yourselves whether or not we are in the wrong, but as for us, we cannot keep quiet about Jesus. Throughout the Bible, there are numerous examples of believers conscientiously disobeying human authority. How do we discern when it's right to do so? When should a believer defy civil authority? Under what conditions might civil disobedience be morally called for? When is it right to break a law, and when is it wrong to obey one? These are hard questions. These are challenging questions that we do well to consider slowly and soberly. We need the guidance of the Holy Spirit and the wisdom of God to walk out our faith. We need to read and read and reread God's word and to let it inform how we live. Generally speaking, we're called to submit to civil authority, and yet ultimately we're called to fear God. As followers of Christ, we have to let our reverence for God lead the way. If you fear God, if you're controlled by an overwhelming love and reverence and awe for him, then everything will become clear. Everything will fall into place. But God must be the source of your fear. As we close, I want us to consider a perspective Peter is inviting us into when it comes to human authority. What Peter is setting forth in these verses is a way that the kingdom of Christ will advance in the world. This section of the letter is about how God is going to usher in his rule and his reign. It's about how the earth will increasingly become more like heaven. How does the kingdom of God advance? Maybe not in the ways we expect. I think we're tempted to think that the kingdom goes forth to the degree that believers gain seats of influence and power in society. I think we're especially susceptible to this kind of thinking in the West, in a country such as ours. We tend to think that what we need when it comes to this issue of civil authority is control. We need to hold seats of influence and power. But I'm convinced that the church in the 21st century will never know the power of God so long as it looks to the world's methodology for kingdom advancement. Pastor Alistair Begg says that we are tempted to believe that we can beat the world at its own game, that we can, taking the same methodology as that around us, build a kingdom for Jesus Christ. But the kingdom ethic that Peter puts before us is quite different. He calls us to submit to authority, to honor our leaders, to seek the good of our city, to live as faithful citizens. And this seems so radically ordinary to us that we we want to reject it in favor of something more sensational. I'm reminded of 2 Kings chapter 5 about this guy named Naaman. Do you remember this story? Naaman was the commander of the army of Aram. He was a valiant warrior, but he came down with a skin disease, and he had heard from a girl that there was someone in Israel who could possibly heal him. And so he sent word to the king of Aram, who sent word to the king of Israel, asking if Naaman could come and be healed. The king of Israel didn't know what to do, but the prophet Elisha assured him not to fret. He said, send Naaman to me. And so Naaman came to the prophet Elisha. And when he got to Elisha, Elisha told him, go wash seven times in the Jordan River and you'll be healed. And when Naaman heard this, he got angry. He left saying, I thought he would come out here and stand and call on the name of the Lord and wave his hand over the place of the disease and cure it. But dip in the Jordan River? Aren't there better rivers back where I'm from? I came all this way just to be told to take a bath? Naaman wanted a spectacle. He wanted a big hoopla. But his servant reasoned with him, My father, if if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more should you do it when he only tells you wash and be clean? Here's what's going on in this passage. Naaman's servant is exactly right. Do the little things asked of you and trust God. That's the message. And when it comes to to the kingdom advancing in our nation, when it comes to seeing the kingdom of God go forth in power, what we might be tempted to think is that what we need is a culture war or a crusade. And yet what God calls us to is to submission and respect and honor. Now, here's the question. Do you trust the wisdom of God over the wisdom of man? What is your hope for America? Is it a political party? Is it a moral majority? Is it Christian nationalism? Or is it the subversive witness of faithful followers of Christ paying their taxes, obeying the law, serving their neighbors, praying for their leaders, seeking the welfare of the city, so that the city is blessed by our presence. What will make the more lasting kingdom impact in our communities is not political power, but the persuasive goodness of Christians living faithfully in society. Jesus said that the kingdom of heaven will grow like leaven in a lump of dough. Starts small and unnoticeable, but as it works its way as you knead the dough, and it works its way in, eventually the whole lump is leavened. As every believer commits to living faithfully unto Jesus, living honorably in society, loving their neighbors, seeking the welfare of the city, submitting to the law, the kingdom will come. If you think that power Trump's persuasive presence, Peter says you have the wrong paradigm. Now listen to me, this isn't a call to political disengagement. It's a call to faith in the wisdom of God and the power of God to work through the people of God as we witness to the gospel in both word and deed. God can do more through our obedience than we can collectively do through obtaining control of Congress. He can do more through us revering him and fulfilling the great commandment than we can do through gaining control of the Supreme Court or the White House. By all means, vote for who you believe is best for our country. Elect who will best represent the common grace values of our nation. In fact, some of you should run for office, engage in this legislative process, but don't for one second think that the kingdom will come mainly by political power. Run for office because our politicians need to meet a real Christian and see them keep their integrity while in office. And don't for one millisecond think that what is hamstringing God is lacking the right leader friends, listen to me. Jesus is on his throne. The true king is in full control. He's simply asking us to live by his spirit and to trust him, to love one another and to fear him. Let's pray.